Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We recorded this episode at the Golf Industry Show in Orlando with one of the leading turfgrass entomologists, Dr. Ben McGraw of Penn State. Ben brings a witty speaking style to his terrific research. Conversations with him, especially on podcasts, are always fun and informative. Ben is a leading expert on the annual bluegrass weevil and white grubs, and he's going to discuss the state of control in these pests on golf courses and his research with Bear's new and versatile active ingredient in this podcast. It should be an, an exciting year in ABW and white grubs control, and we're fortunate Ben took some time in Orlando to give us a preview. Ben, thanks for joining us. We're here at the Golf Industry Show in Orlando, and you just gave a seminar presentation this morning, and you have another one tomorrow, but we're going to be talking about the control of two turfgrass pests, the ABW and grubs. And the first thing I wanted to ask you is, how much of your time is spent studying, discussing, and thinking about turfgrass pests? I don't think I've ever thought about it in that regard. I'd have to add that up, but a good deal of my time is thinking about that. Um, I guess I have some other responsibilities at Penn State and teaching like general turfgrass management, but yeah, for the most part, that's the vast majority of my days thinking about turfgrass insect control. Yeah, what do you do to get away from it? Well, you and I were just talking about both being avid golfers and, and lovers of the game and architecture and all of that, and it's kind of hard to, you know, golf is a big release for me, but like you said, you know, when you're walking around the golf course, you can't untie yourself from the management of it. So uh, I try to do that. I try to do some other creative outlets. It get me away from thinking about six-legged things, and now our research is evolving into non-six-legged things like earthworms, like what I talked about today. So uh, it's not that bad. I don't mind being immersed in it. Yeah, It's a passion. All right, I guess on to the six-legged <laughs> things now. How would you characterize the state of white grubs research and control entering the new de decade? I know it's hard to believe we're in the 2020s, but where, where do you see this type of research and uh, control going right now? Uh, I think there are some exciting things coming down the pipeline. I think... Um, you know, white, one, if we just discuss white grubs and where we're at in 2020, we're coming off of two really, really bad years for damage uh, in the Northeast. We've had some extreme weather, some of the wettest years on record, um, some products, and maybe possibly just the application of those products um, were not well-timed or they had some extreme obstacles to overcome, like flooding and things like that. Uh, so I would say where we're at in 2020 is I think we're carrying over much bigger grub populations than we have in past years. Uh, but from the management side, I think there's going to be some things coming down the pipeline that are pretty interesting. Um, you know, from our trials, we, we see a lot of exciting news. What a strange job. Like, the worse the weather is, the tougher it is on the superintendents and the landscape managers, but the better it is for your research. How much do you, lear do you learn during those crazy weather years like 2018 and 19? Well, some of those things that can be, no pun intended, a, a total wash. You know, so courses in our area, the Pittsburgh area, you know, we do a lot of work in western Pennsylvania. Extreme, extreme amounts of moisture. That's always good for the insects as far as their development. Uh, but it also puts some strains on uh, our traditional chemistries and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, sometimes it is 
the golf course is bad is my benefit. Um, in this case, you know, it's it's a tough one with grubs. I mean, we have uh, several species that we deal with. So even sometimes when we have droughty years, that will favor other pest beetles rather than where we have really moist years. So it's kind of good job security is an even keel. So with, with turf grasses, there's a big difference between bent grass and Bermuda grass and zoysia grass and paspalum. With grubs, is there a big difference between the different uh, species you would find on a golf course? Oh, absolutely. So um, as I said, in Pennsylvania, we deal with many different species kind of all colliding. And white grubs are, you know, they're common to every turf situation around the globe. Everyone's going to have a white grub problem. But where we are, um, we need to have solutions that work on many different species. But we also see big differences, um, not, not so much in the timing of when they occur, with the exception of something like black turf grass, Atenius, it has a much different life cycle than the other grubs. Uh, so we, we'll see similar timings in our annual white grubs, but we can see uh, some, such as like the European chafer, feed later in the year, earlier in the year, so it can cause more damage that way. Uh, or we might see something like Japanese beetle in our area, pretty prevalent, uh, but w- which would also feed on ornamental plantings as an adult. So there are some pretty big differences, but really, I think for most turf grass managers, I think because of the luxury of the products that we have uh, that kind of get a broad spectrum of those uh, white grub species, it's, it's less of an issue. So understanding how the general white grub behaves is, is most important. Okay, on, on to another pest, the annual bluegrass yes. weevil. I know that occupies a lot of your time. Where are you at with studying and controlling that pest entering this new de- decade? Well, that's a, that one You know, is a really difficult insect. I'd say it's our toughest insect to kill. I'd say it's our most important one on golf courses in the Northeast. Uh, so, you know, it's not all-purpose general turf pests. It is a very much a golf course specialist in some close-cut bent grass and close-cut poa on things like tennis courts, you know, which is really kind of cool <laughs> system to work in. But it is, it is a pest that seems to be uh, always evolving. So everything that we find out about it, then uh, it goes and changes things like we're seeing uh, We saw damage to a sports field for the first time this year. I'd never seen that before. Saw a really high height of cut before that. uh, You know, that was about an inch and a quarter, inch and a half height cut. I've never seen damage to that before this year. Uh, We're seeing a lot more feeding on bent grass as it moves further south. So I have a student who is uh, starting her PhD who's looking at plant defenses and, and looking at creeping bent grass as being a more tolerant but it's also this host that it can develop in. So we need to figure that out. Uh, resistance is a big issue with this insect, and resistance to the pyrethroids has caused some populations at high levels to seem to have a decrease in susceptibility to unrelated compounds. Really bizarre, multiple resistance. Uh, so that's a really tough one, and we want to avoid that at all costs. So I have my other graduate students working on more gut microbiome uh, processes that allow the insect to become resistant. So, Besides resistance, what, what characteristics of the annual bluegrass weevil make it so dang tough to control on a golf course? Well, it's one, it's a small beetle, so it's easily overlooked. So from the scouting aspect in the beginning, uh, it's also what we would call cryptic. It hides its stages inside the plant. 
so we can see the adults come out in spring, and sometimes we see you know pretty good evidence of that visually that you can see adults walking on green surfaces or tea boxes, something like that. But once it places its eggs, it's going to be inside the turf grass plant and really well protected uh, from even some of our contact insecticides. So it's usually not until it's too late when it's popped out of the plant and it's started to feed on the crown that it's really uh, dropping plants in a, in a localized area. So it's a really tough insect, and I, I think a lot of the control problems uh, occur because of the biological nature of the insect, you know, that it has these hidden stages. So how do you structure your year? When do you start studying white grubs and the annual bluegrass weevil? And when you go into a new year... New, new decade, what, what do you try to learn about them? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, we're talking at the golf industry show, and, and this is a time of year where we're on the talk circuit and we're traveling all across the country giving talks. But this is, we've come through the time where I would be summarizing all the data from the year, so I haven't really started to look forward to next year. And that's one thing is when I'm giving a lot of talks, I get a lot of information from uh, turfgrass managers about what they're seeing or what they've tried, which gives us a lot of ideas for our research and what we want to focus in on in the future. Uh, some of our projects are obviously multi-year projects, so we have continuations of that. But I really start planning right about now. Uh, the annual bluegrass weevil is going to be the first insect that comes out, and uh, along with European crane flies. So those studies really happen very early in spring. So we do all our planning uh, kind of in this downtime, which is not really downtime because we're traveling a lot, but it, it gives us a lot of time to think about what we want to focus on. Uh, you know, we meet with industry partners, and, and they might have some products that they want to have tested. So we do a fair amount of work of doing chemical efficacy trials. So in springtime, it's, it's heavy annual bluegrass weevil until we get through the first generation. So I'm usually pretty good by about mid-June about slowing down. The insect does not slow down then, but that's really the time of the year where we have dense populations and we can get good data. And so we, we yeah. work really hard uh, to get to mid-June. And then the nice thing about my job is that's what, like when all the pathologists start rolling with all their work, my summertime is pretty, pretty minimal. I'm just <laughs> dealing with house calls and doing <laughs> fun site visits and stuff like that at that time. Uh, white grub season, you know, it, it, we do little bits to get that going throughout the year, but really the heaviest time for that is in the fall. So that's, I've got a good nine months of pests that we can deal with, with three months of seminar speaker circuit type stuff. So it's, it's, it makes it difficult for planning. But, yeah, this is the time of the year that we're really, like, looking forward to getting outside and trying some new things. Other things, we might do some lab tests with different insects in the lab. Uh, unfortunately, with white grubs, you can't rear them in the lab. But with the annual bluegrass weevil, we can collect adults from overwintering sites and do studies so we can make it 12 months. You mentioned the speaking circuit, and you mentioned industry partners. You have something new to talk about this year. Bear has a new active ingredient. What have you learned about that? I know that you wanted to say this. Tetranilipril. <laughs> Just what I was going to say, but probably the wrong way. But what have you learned about it, and... What can you share about your research with it up to this point? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. I, I had to look back through all our studies and our reports that we generate. Uh, we, we have been looking at this compound, I believe, since 2016. So uh, initially we had looked at it at white grubs and, and more recently with annual bluegrass weevil. 
I believe had a six tests with it in, in, in various studies. So there's still a lot more to learn about it. Um, I think we did some studies this year with annual bluegrass weevil that really were um, promising, and, and I wouldn't have expected it to work in the way that it did. But um, what we what I can say about it is it's from the anthronilic diamide family. So uh, this would be Bear's first anthronilic diamide. From our lab data, I would say it seems to provide very good control of both annual bluegrass weevils and white grubs. So those are the two big ones in our area. Uh, we can make some, you know, without having an extensive data set or having worked with it in, in many, many trials, um, we can make some assumptions based on its class that it belongs to the anthronilic diamides. And uh, one nice feature about that class is it has long uh, residual control, so you can put it down preventively and, and get multiple species. Uh, you know, there's lots of studies we still need to figure out, so I think there's going to be, and, and you know, and I haven't seen my colleagues' data on these things, so, uh, you know, I think for us, we're, we're still learning quite a bit about it, but so far it looks pretty promising. Yeah, how exciting is it when you do get something new in your hands and you get the see how it reacts in different situations? I guess when somebody's in your role, that, that has to be a really exciting thing to, to do tests on something new that might be coming out to help the superintendents and other end users. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say more often than not, uh, when we do trials, it's because somebody's coming to us because they believe that they have activity with something. And, and oftentimes... You don't, you know, there's nothing more depressing than not finding solutions. And especially for annual bluegrass weevil, like, we need to have options. Uh, so it's a nice option. Uh, you know, some of our data would suggest that it behaves a little bit different than these other anthronilic diamides. Uh, we did do a curative annual bluegrass weevil trial, a very late rescue um, trial in May, and we, we got really nice suppression. Now, it's not... With any of the Weevil products, you're not going to get 100% control with any product out there on the market. And, and what we saw with the curative activity being applied very late against those crown-feeding larvae was a, a really nice reduction. Uh, so that's really exciting. I mean, it, having options is a, a, a big plus. Having things that work slightly differently from one another is a, is a nice plus as well. Uh, in the insecticide world, there are not that many products that are available. Uh, you know, that's just the, the, the facts of it. It's not like herbicides. It's not like fungicides where you have many, many classes and many products and far harder to say than tetranilaprol. But, uh, in the insect world, it's, it's a pretty limited buffet. And so that, you know, and we already have resistance with one of the big species that we've been talking about. Anything that we can do to delay it, such as rotating, mixing, using cultural controls, all these things are going to help. So it's, it, it is exciting that, you know, these options are coming along. How many different insecticide classes do you get to work with on a regular basis? So there are numerous classes, but uh, if you look at what's available for turf or what's appropriate for turf, you know, it's a handful. It's, um, you know, five or six that we regularly deal with. Uh, we were just talking about tetranilaprol. Being an anthronilic diamine, that's a class 28. Uh, that's the most recent, really, group of insecticides that we've had. So we've seen a lot of innovation over the last 20 years. Uh, but we, we're also starting to see some of our older products, um, some of these really old chemistries that were developed in the 50s and 60s, like the carbamates and the organophosphates, kind of being uh, looked at a little bit more intensely and, and 
possibly, you know, some of them are very important tools for managing our turf pests. They're, they're probably going to go by the wayside. So it's a, it is exciting when something new comes along because we just, we're not generating new products uh, as fast as the, the market needs them to be, but it, they're very expensive to bring to market from discovery to product launch. Do your colleagues who work with fungicides and herbicides ask you about insecticides a lot, and do you get questions about some of the things that we just were discussing? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, I mean, my position, and I'll promote Penn State as being the greatest place on earth, but, uh, you know, that's a great thing about having a lot of uh, active faculty yeah. members who are working in different areas. Don't ever ask me for a fungicide or herbicide recommendation because I, I just I I have the luxury of not having to know that stuff. I can rely on the experts. So yeah, we definitely share uh, bits and, and get people headed in the right direction when somebody comes to ask us about a question. But yeah, I would hate to have to memorize all the herbicides and, mm -hmm. and fungicides out there. That's it's much bigger than insecticides. Do you envy how many new products they get to play with and new solutions that they get to test? Do you ever think, boy, I wish I was in that, th that situation? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and being able to hit different target sites and, and stuff like that, I mean, it's, it seems the, the, the one thing that I like about what I do is insects have behaviors that we can exploit. Like, there's, there's more of an, they're animals, right? So there's more behavior that's involved. I think it's more exciting. Uh, so, no, I don't envy them for that. It seems like that would be a tough world to be dealing with. Like, But, yeah, they probably get to go to a lot of product launches all the time with way more compounds. Okay, this is a question that you could probably take hours answering, but i got to ask it. Has the ABW range expanded? I know there's been talk that they're in new places, and you hear that talk almost every spring, summer, and fall, but but it, but is that true, and are you seeing activity in places that you did not see it when you started your research and your career? Absolutely. So I would say that's a slide uh, that, you know, the, the distribution is, might be a slide that I put in an ABW talk, and every year that seems to change. It's probably in some places that we don't know, uh, and it's probably doing fine. We believe it to be a native insect and present in many, many states. But what's happening is it's moving out radially from where it was found and, or at least where it was first reported damaging turf. Uh, so it, maybe there's a speciation event there that this insect has evolved from doing something in a wetland to feeding on turf grasses or something like that. But where we've seen it most recently, um, very far outside the distribution. So when you see something jump out of this kind of circle around New York City, uh, you got to start to think, is that, has this been moved and sawed? So I do think that uh, it has been moved and sawed into a few places. Um, we believe that to be the case in Arkansas. Uh, it showed up a couple of years ago in Arkansas on Bentcrest um, Golf Course. Uh, I believe the sod came from New Jersey. Uh, and we just recently have found it in Louisville, Kentucky, which is pretty far removed. So basically where you are, Guy, where you live in Cleveland, is about as far west, you know, that kind of the Akron, Cleveland area of northeast Ohio is pretty much what we see as its distribution west. So when it shows up in Louisville, that's pretty stark distance yeah. away from it. So, uh, so I do think, like, movement in sod is a concern. But I think we're also going to see it move more north. So it's been given a lot of talks in Canada recently, last year, 
or two years ago, I gave a talk in Nova Scotia, and they believe that it's moving in there. So I would expect, you know, as temperature becomes warmer and warmer and we have wetter springs, I could see significant movement north. Uh, we know it's in the London, Ontario area, which is not that far from Michigan. I would expect, you know, that would be my prediction, at least for the natural spread of populations and not taking out the, the transport. Uh, but if it's in London, Ontario, I don't see why it wouldn't be uh, come a problem in the Detroit area. Lots of POA there, lots of old courses. It seems like a perfect environment yeah. for them. So I, I am kind of surprised it hasn't shown up there. What would you tell somebody who has never dealt with them about the annual blue, bluegrass weevil and what can some of the superintendents in some of these regions and areas that you just mentioned do to prepare for that, that migration and make possible presence of them? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one because the last thing that I'd want somebody to do is just assume like a New York City spray regime program for something that they didn't have or even um, putting stuff out preventively until you know you have it. Unfortunately, it's usually uh, people find out that they have a problem when they experience significant turf loss. And that's, a, that's kind of a tough way to go about it. We've done different studies trying to do early detection systems. We did the dog, the beagle sniffing. Uh, the I got to see that in action. That was, that was pretty darn cool about five years ago. Oh, it was, it was the best. It was the coolest study where you could find, I'm a big dog lover, so just being around the dogs was awesome. So, you know, that was one thing that we thought about doing. We're trying to detect them using uh, uh, different spectral cameras on drones and stuff. So I would wish we had a pheromone or something where we could trap them and say this is where they are and this is where they're not. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, Usually just kind of astute people looking at some little bit of chlorosis at a certain time of year uh, causes further examination, and then they discover that they have a weevil problem. But it, it's really kind of terrible advice that I have to give, but you, I wouldn't be treating unless I knew I had the pest. Um, because when you do have it, you're going to probably want to save those dollars for uh, some of these chemistries that we we're talking about today. How does someone know if they have it? Usually, uh, you know, so it has multiple generations per year. Usually our worst generations or most damaging are in the springtime. So in central Pennsylvania to uh, New York City metro area, you know, you might start seeing turf grass loss around Memorial Day into the second week of June, somewhere in that time frame there. Uh, it looks very much like anthracnose. And so in certain cases where people have been spraying for anthracnose, thinking that they had anthracnose and that turf declines, that, that has been an indication for some people that they have a weevil problem. Uh, we do have very simple sampling methods, taking cores and out of the ground and breaking them apart and looking for the larvae close to the soil surface. Uh, but usually it's, it's some sort of turf collapse before people realize that they have them for the first time. Other people, if you're anywhere in Pennsylvania... Uh, I could say you probably have weevils, but is it a problem enough to warrant uh, treatment? And what we see is oftentimes that, you know, some of these uh, mom-and-pop golf courses in western PA, you know, don't have anything planned for sprays, and they do just fine. So it, that's one of the mysteries about this insect. What do you look to learn in a year like this? What are your goals here for the next few months what can people do to, to get involved to help, help somebody like yourself out in the research you do? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about this upcoming year. I got two new grad students, two PhD students, um, who are, I think they're going to solve big problems, and their their work is really cool, and that allows me to dabble on small things. So uh, I think we're always looking to figure out something a little bit more about the behavior of the insects. So that's what I'm really interested in. I'm fascinated by what makes insects do different things so that we can find that one weakness and exploit it. Um, you know, I'd say we got some drone stuff where we're trying to detect them early. Uh, we've got some microbiome stuff that's really fascinating. The creeping bent grass stuff I think is fascinating too. But we're also looking at egg laying again. We've, we're kind of returning to that to see really why they make their choices in certain areas, what we can do to manipulate egg laying. Are there any products that affect egg laying? That's something that we haven't looked at. But also kind of, you know, trying to look for more biologically based solutions as well. When should this be on a superintendent's mind, uh, grubs and annual bluegrass weevil? Yeah, I think with grubs, um, you know, so our lab probably does 80% annual bluegrass weevil. That's how big of a problem it is. And I think with white grubs, um, you know, I kind of missed the big white grub boom. I was born too late. Yeah. Uh, so in the 90s when the neonics came out, there, I'm sure there was a great amount of work there that a turf grass researcher could generate a, 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 some good income from these chemical companies. Uh, and then the anthranilic diamides came along after that, and they were you know, kind of even better. than uh, The neonics were great, and the anthranilic diamides made it even easier. So really, I, I think white grubs is... For most people, it's only a concern at early order period about what you're going to get for your product. The, the chemistries have totally revolutionized white grub control. I think with annual bluegrass weevil, um, you know, again, that should start at early order too. You know, you got to think about the chemistries that you want to order for the year. This the insect is in certain areas like ours where densities are very high people absolutely need to treat for it so coming up with a game plan uh it's usually right in in the spring right as soon as you're getting a few mowings on and you're you're just trying to keep up on mowing that this insect is like ramping up there's one really good time uh where there's only one stage present and that's coming out of winter so as the adults move out that's the only time you're going to have one stage present after that, they start laying eggs, there's larvae, there's adults, there's new adults. It's just, it becomes a jumbled mess. So what i got to say is uh, for ABW, it's, it's really has to be on your mind as soon as uh, spring breaks. If you start controlling this insect or if you realize that you have a problem or something wasn't applied properly or that product uh, was washed away, in summertime, it's just a jumbled mess, and, and really satisfactory control at that point is very, very challenging. As we mentioned earlier in this podcast, where we're recording this at the, the golf industry show, that's probably why you might, if you're listening, hearing some noise in the, the background. But, you know, as we walk around the trade show floor here in Orlando, people will be talking about the golf boom and what things were like in the 90s and 2000s. What was the white grub boom like what have your older colleagues told you about about yeah. about those days i think um there was lots of testing that needed to be done on the neonics uh you know there's a lot of talk about them in the news today about issues with bees but i uh in turf grass that's really not a huge problem because we water these products in immediately so there was a lot of 
uh, early work that needed to be figured out for all these different species. And, and that, that class of chemistry has really revolutionized white grub control. Prior to that, we were using very broad spectrum you know, non-discriminatory insecticides that are going to wipe out everything and not even get a very high level of control. And the turf grass manager would have to identify those areas where the grubs were. So really challenging, and, and for better or for worse, when neonicotinoids came on the market, it really eliminated the need for scouting. It just basically took that out of the turf grass manager's business. You know, you basically have cheap insurance that you can put down that's preventive. And those products still work really, really well today. Uh, and then the antranilic diamides probably made it even better. Yeah. So uh, I kind of missed out on both of those booms graduating too late. So Yeah, without these booms and all that research and development 20 to 25 years ago, you'd probably be studying white grubs a lot more than you are now, right? Absolutely. So I, was, we, I had this talk with uh, our labs technician, Danny Klein. So Danny worked for my predecessor, Paul Heller. And Paul's work was probably 80 to 85% white grubs, is what Danny reported to me. And now he thinks it's ironic that, it, and they did very little ABW work, and now that's completely opposite. It also, I think, speaks to just the growing severity of annual bluegrass weevil, its ability to develop resistance and problems associated with that. Last thing here, where can people go? to find you. You're very active on social media, but I'm sure Penn State has a lot of great resources online, too, for people to learn more about white grubs and annual bluegrass weevil. Where can people go to find out more about this? Well, uh, you can always see me at one of my talks. I give numerous talks uh, across the country and Canada a lot this winter. So that's, a, I think, getting live information is always the best. Uh, you can visit our turf website. Uh, we do have some fact sheets and stuff like that if you needed information on white grubs or you could always pick up the phone and call uh, my office. So when I'm not teaching, I'm usually in my office and if I'm not on the road, then I'm in my office and happy to chat turf insects with you. And if a superintendent wants to get involved, are you actively looking for places to conduct research too? Is that something else that you want to <laughs> emphasize or give a shout out to? We primarily, ironically, they don't want me to bring insect pests to the, the research farms on campus because I have all of my colleagues who are trying to generate data on other things yeah. that need to be insect-free. So we really are on the road. We do most of our studies off campus, and we do most of our studies on golf courses. So, yeah, we're always looking for good white grub spots. Uh, we do artificially infest our white grubs on campus and confine them to get them to lay eggs in the soil. But for the most part, we're on the road, and we're in Pittsburgh twice a week, which is no small journey. We're, we're going to be going to D.C. a lot this spring. So, yeah, we're, we're always looking for great research sites. It's, uh, it is, Penn State's in a great location. Perfect climate, very nice community, centrally located but geographically isolated. So we really do need to travel, yeah. uh, you know, quite a distance to get to some of our field sites. So. Uh, we're always looking for good sites and good cooperators. Well, Ben, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy golf industry show schedule. We look forward to catching up with you again in the spring, and, and good luck with your speaking and good luck with your research. I know that the work you're doing is going to help a lot of superintendents out. Oh, thanks for the kind words, guy. It was awesome.